Hello and welcome to episode two of Logicast, the podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson and I'm here with my colleague John. Hi, I'm John again and I'm in my shed. Hi. I'm also in Logicata's global shed quarters here on the Sussex coast in the UK. So the Logicast podcast, episode two, every week uh, we take a deep dive into last week's AWS news. Uh, as you may or may not know, uh, Logicata produces a weekly AWS news roundup email newsletter. I introduce that via video on all the various social channels. And then John and I pick uh, a few of our favorite articles and take a bit of a deep dive uh, into the news from last week. So this week, uh, the first article we've picked on um, is actually an AWS blog post uh, written by Kurt Tomitek, a senior solutions architect at AWS. And it's called Simplifying Serverless Permissions with AWS SAM Connectors. SAM, of course, standing for Serverless Application Model. And as is always the case, that's about all I know. I've managed the TLA. I know what it stands for. <laughs> so I'm going to have to hand over to John to really explain what it is. But of course, serverless very fashionable at the moment, isn't it, John? Uh, we've certainly been talking to some of our customers this week about taking them from a serverless to a serverless world. So tell me about simplifying serverless permissions with AWS SAM connectors. Okay, this is fun. And fun in the real sense, because I spent um, the best part of the last two years before coming and doing this spectacularly fun podcast, um, building out some infrastructure in serverless using SAM because all of the other ways of deploying lambdas are horrible. There's, there's not a good one. They're all horrible. SAM is kind of the least horrible. The problem with SAM is it's it's an abstract. If you're not familiar, SAM is a, is an abstraction on top of cloud formation. It's a transform layer and it adds a few unique resources that. Um, take the nasty bits out of packaging and deploying lambdas away so you don't have to worry about zipping it and uploading it and referencing it in there you just tell sam where it is it grabs it does all of that does an md5 sum on it so that it knows when it needs to re-upload and all that jazz it's great it's brilliant love it the problem comes in permissions because it's if it's not dns it's permissions the problem comes in permissions because it's all done in iam and defining IAM roles and policies in CloudFormation is awful. It's horrible because you either you're doing it just in JSON if you're writing a CloudFormation in JSON, or you're kind of doing a JSONified YAML if you're doing it in YAML, and that's horrific as well. And then on top of that, you need to know the ins and outs of every single thing that your function needs to run to have access to or it'll just sort of bomb out and give you an unhelpful error message you know i don't have access to this or in some cases the error message for not having access is i couldn't find this you can get 404s from some resources for not having permissions which is great from a security perspective because it means you can't enumerate it but as a developer that's really irritating what the sam connectors are doing and honestly i wish this had come out years ago what the SAM connectors are doing is it's just another layer of obfuscation on top of native cloud formation. So a serverless connector, it's saying, instead of having to write an IAM policy and a role and attach the role to the Lambda and making sure that it kind of all hangs together, you write this connector and say, I need write permission on this table, please. I need read permission on that bucket, please. You don't have to know 
the ins and outs of how IAM works. You don't have to need about roles, groups, policies, and all that jazz. You don't have to know about the specific um, actions. You just need, you know, the 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 crud ops, if you like. The I need read, I need write, I need delete, whatever. You don't need to know that in order to do that in S3, you need get object, get object ACLs, read, list, all those sorts of things. You just say, I need read access, please. So yeah, that's that's what that does. That makes I am in SAM templates not suck. So what are the alternatives then? If it's better than the alternatives, what are the alternatives that do suck? <laughs> well, the alternatives, um, as I say, this is this is an obfuscation on top of native cloud formation. So. The alternatives are you do it in native cloud formation or you do it in Terraform, which sucks, or you do it in, uh, to be clear, Terraform itself doesn't suck. Nothing does I am very well. Um, or you go and do it in the console, which you just don't know. Or you do it on the command line, which sucks. Got it. It just all sucks. This just sucks less. <laughs> and has that changed at all with the recent changes to I am? Because there have been some changes to the uh, the whole naming of uh, of i am and and the structure of i am is it any different now, so that didn't really that affect um, exercise? yeah option two um what they did was they they being aws they um renamed aws sso to i am identity center which sso was an abstraction on top of i am that just kind of let you do things cross organization a lot easier and but it built on top of i am so they just kind of called it i am id center instead but no that's completely unrelated to this yeah well there you go shows what i know but uh no thank you for that detailed <laughs> explanation john um so um actually the first uh, two or three articles that we're going to pick on this week they're all um aws blog posts the next one that we chose was chaos engineering and uh, for some reason whenever uh, whenever i think of uh, chaos engineering i just picture monkeys monkeying around uh, i'm sure it's nothing to do with monkeys whatsoever um, i also think of netflix because i think they uh, the ones who pioneered uh, the technique um, and perhaps even coined the term um, so uh, yeah i've got a very kind of rough high level idea about chaos engineering but tell us more in 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 your ineffable way carl you have come a roundabout way of of quoting it chaos monkeys were created by netflix it's a thing that's why i think about monkeys i knew there was a reason it's not it's not just my random brain uh, coming up with these things <laughs> so yeah right you're not wrong um Netflix were the first people to start doing this. The short version of what chaos engineering is, and it says this in the article, it's it's running experiments in your infrastructure. It's got a rep for doing it in prod, but you don't have to, um, which is why it's kind of fallen out of favour of late, because, you know, people don't want to be running experiments in production. They just want to be running production. So you don't have to do it there. But it's running experiments, getting things to... Um, <coughs> excuse me, getting things to uh, slow down randomly, to die randomly, you know, servers turning off, that sort of thing, uh, queues throttling randomly, That that's the rough sort of idea. Um, the three chaos animals that I think are popular that Netflix, I think it was Netflix, came out with. Netflix did the chaos monkey, 
which just randomly throws faults at things. And then there's the Chaos Gorilla, which randomly smashes things and just destroys servers and stuff. And then I think there's the Chaos Snail that causes random slowdowns in places. So, the whole zoo coming out to play. I like the monkey and gorilla analogy because I see them as quite chaotic creatures, but I can't say that I've ever considered a snail to be particularly chaotic. Um, Although their (laughs) trails can be quite random at times, um, they don't tend to like to go from A to B uh, in a straight line, it would appear. Um, So, uh, yeah, so, so... what else is this article telling us about chaos engineering? Well, yeah, so it talks about the shared responsibility model because Amazon can't put a blog post out without talking about the shared responsibility model. It, it's it's sort of like bad juju, I think, for them. You've got to talk about... If you talk about doing things that aren't perfect, talk about the fact that it's not our fault if it breaks. Cool. <laughs> So it talks about the shared responsibility model. You usually see that in security land, but in this case, it's it's resilience, which is, you know, they're responsible for resilience of the cloud. Not like their data centers aren't catching fire all the time and that they've got lots of them available and that sort of thing. And you'll and the customer is responsible for uh, resilience in the cloud, you know, making sure that you're architecting subject to best practice, going multi-AZ and backing things up and so on and so on. So they've spoken about that because, like I say, they, they, it's it's like Beetlejuice. You talk, you say AWS three times, and they talk about the shared responsibility model. <laughs> yeah, and then they talk about resilience that... in the cloud. You know, go on. No, no, you carry on, John. You carry on. Okay. And then they talk about resilience in the cloud a bit more once they put their spectacularly dull diagram in. Um, you know, architecting your workloads, talking about the well-architected frameworks reliability pillar, because obviously everybody knows what that is. Um, Talking about regulated environments, doing DR and all that boring stuff. Um, And then they start talking about the real world, which is scary from a cloud provider. They talk about Hurricane Sandy taking down um, critical infrastructure in the northeast US back in 2012. Um, Mm. You know, and, and continuity plans not taking account of people living not where they worked. Yeah, yeah. I missed a flight to the US in in Hurricane Sandy, actually. I was sitting in a Heathrow departure lounge uh, waiting for a flight to New York, uh, which got delayed and delayed and delayed and eventually cancelled. Of course, the great thing when you're sitting in an airport lounge and you're getting delays is you can just continue to enjoy the hospitality. Um, Thankfully, I didn't uh, fly straight into the eye of the storm, but uh, uh, yeah, (laughs) managed to escape that that one. 737. So so in terms of chaos engineering in AWS then, are they doing this themselves on the part of the cloud that they're responsible for? Or are they saying that this is your responsibility as a customer to do your to release your own monkeys, gorillas and snails into the cloud? Whether they're doing chaos engineering in their side or not, they don't talk about it here. I would imagine that they are, but that's not something that they're going to expose to people in the blog post. They then do go on to talk about Fault Injection Simulator, because whoever named this is boring. Um, They could have called it the Amazon Gorilla. They could have called it the Amazon Hippo. But no, Fault Injection Simulator. Okay. So FIS, they then talk about what it is and what it does. (laughs) Injects faults in a simulated manner. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't simulate the injection Um, of faults. 
<laughs> I'm not sure what the difference is really, but uh, there we go. I'm dead. <laughs> what it's doing is it's doing things like terminating resources, forcing things to fail over from one AZ to another, um, throttling, dropping packets, that kind of stuff. You know, what you'd get from your chaos animals, but in um, Amazon land. And then they sort of set up, uh, they, they show like a diagram of, of how you can do it and how you can set up CloudWatch alarms as guardrails to terminate experiments if things start going outside the bounds of kind of where you wanted them to be and that kind of thing um, and what they're saying is that they have a whole toolkit with uh, comes to integrates with external tools such as chaos toolkit and chaos mesh which I've never heard of um, so that you can inject sort of faults that they can supply and faults that third parties can supply but but what they're really saying is that here's you know what chaos engineering is. Here's how we can help you do it in your environment. Got it. So obviously Netflix is a huge organisation with global infrastructure, um, and uh, going to need a lot of monkeys and gorillas to find the faults in that. Is this relevant in smaller environments? How big do you need to be to take advantage of chaos engineering? I wouldn't say you needed to be big or small to take advantage of it. I would, however, say that if you're quite small, scrappy kind of startup land, you're going to have far too many bugs to worrying about injecting fake faults to start with. <laughs> you can have enough real ones. I often um, consider myself as a bit of a chaos engineer. Uh, I'm very good at breaking things, so uh, maybe uh, maybe this is a, a, a path I should follow in my career. Uh, M -Turk. Break bigger things. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you don't have to be a particularly big or small scale, but I would suggest that if you're small, scrappy startup still, uh, you have bigger things to be worrying about, like making sure that your features work at all and that you can deliver for your customers before worrying about you know weird edge cases that you don't know about. Just on the mechanical Turk, was that an Amazon thing, or mm. was that was that somebody else that uh, yeah invented? It was an Amazon tech? thing. It. it was um, a way of getting NAF jobs run by people in um, low-cost areas. So, you, you, you know, transcribe Not these 35,000 posts for me, that kind of thing. No, mm. Mechanical Turk, T-U-R-K. Mm. Yeah, but not that's specifically an abbreviation Turkey. for I someone think, uh, from Turkey, is it not? Uh, yes, but not in this context. I think it's some sort of automaton, like old Victorian language. Mm, mm. I think. But yeah, that was an Amazon Probably, thing. Yeah. But I wouldn't recommend yeah, signing up for it. Here, but, uh, no, completely here. I wonder if it's still a thing. We need to check that out. Anyway, let's move on from chaos engineering um, to our third uh, article and uh, AWS blog post. This one uh, is about... Um, Backup and restore strategies for large databases on Amazon RDS for SQL Server uh, by Yogi Barrett and Vikas Babugali. I apologize, guys, if I pronounced your names incorrectly. Um, but, um, yeah, John, tell us more about backup and restore strategies for large databases on Amazon RDS for SQL Server. Before I do, I have to apologize to anyone listening for picking this article because it's very dry and very hardcore engineering, so I'm sorry. Um you did choose so, it though, John, I have to say. I <laughs> I did. I did. For my sins, yes, I did. I spent, context, I spent three years working for a large, well-known 
bank um, that used SQL Server to run um, an ETL system. So I'm familiar with backing up and restoring SQL Server and how horrible it is. So that's why I've picked it. Go for it. it did you, I, I thought you picked it because you were very dry and a hardcore engineer. <laughs> Hang on. Let, let, let me get a little bit less dry. <laughs> yeah. With my Logicata branded water bottle. <laughs> so Maybe we should start giving those away. Backing up and... Rest Maybe. Right. Should I talk about it? Right, there we go. Backing up and restoring SQL Server. So, there is a native um, approach. There is a native option because SQL Server doesn't just live in the cloud. It was a product before the cloud was a thing. It's RDS supports the native approach for SQL Server backups, right? And you run, um, what have they done? They've put in the RDO, RDS backup database, they've put a stored proc, stored procedure in one of the system databases when you spin up RDS, right? And it's got stored procs for backing up RDS databases that support backing up directly to S3. So in on-prem land, or if you've rolled it yourself and running it on an EC2, but it's not AWS aware, then you um, spit your backups out to disk. Yeah, they just come out in files up, up to 10, I think, because it can chunk them. Um, it spits them out to disk. And then you can load them back in again using, again, built-in stored proc, and it reads them from kind of where you tell it to. AWS have AWSified this a bit by adding support for going directly to S3 with your backups, which is great, because if you're backing up terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data, the only place you can reliably put that these days is S3, because it's functionally unlimited. It's also put... Uh, built-in support for encrypting these with KMS, which again is a great thing because you want to be able to encrypt your database backups because if you've got secure access to your database and then you've just left your backups on a USB key and lost them on the bus, fat lot of good it's done you. So it's gone straight to S3 and it's been encrypted. Happy days, lovely. And then, you know, the usuals on, on whether you're overwriting or not and if it's a differential backup or a full backup and so on and so on. So it supports that, like I say, with a few extra bits and pieces. Um, the backups take a while um, just because of the size of the databases that they're working with here. And they've got timings and kind of how much and how many er and errors that they saw and, and retries and that sort of thing. And then they talk about restoring from said files and you can restore directly from S3, you, you know, on these files, which is great it, because you don't have to muck around. If you've ever had the misfortune of having to do this pre-AWS or pre-really quick data transfers, moving terabytes and terabytes of files around, it takes you all day. It's horrible. Or you end up needing just these massive sand drives in places that you can get to them. And doing it direct to and from S3, happy days. Just brilliant. It's fantastic. So you don't have to worry about your data storage. But what it is saying is that the restores are taking, you know, the backups are taking hours and the restores are taking hours. I think a five terabyte restore here took, yeah, 470 minutes, which is eight hours or so. It's a very long time. And then they talk about the snapshot approach. Now, this is not unique to SQL Server in RDS, right? All of RDS supports snapshots. 
what snapshots do automated backups and manual snapshots they do the same thing they functionally take an image of the um, disks and the server and stuff at a particular point in time stores it off in it uses s3 under the covers but it's not putting it in a bucket that you have access to but it is in s3 under the covers um, and then just sequesters that away and, and hangs on to it um, what they are saying here is they're a bit less detailed in what they're doing because it's you know it's it's AWS RDS functionality rather than SQL functionality but what they're saying is whilst the backups are taking about the same length of time um, a 10 terabyte database took 11 hours to back up the restore only took 23 minutes rather than five hours eight hours so it is much faster to restore from a snapshot if you have that as an option um, and then after the initial manual snapshot, the next one only took five minutes um, to take with a restore of about 20 minutes again. And the reason for this is um, they don't really advertise this. But what I've noticed, because they talk about it in um, when paying for storage for backups, but that's the only time they talk about it, is in AWS, a snapshot, every single snapshot can be treated as a full backup, but they're not. They're secret differential backups, which is why the first one took 11 hours and the next one took five minutes, because it actually only took um, a delta. But then you can restore the second one as if it was a full backup, which is really insanely cool, and they don't talk about it enough, outside of the pricing. Because in the pricing, when you pay for storing your backups, you pay for the first full one and then the diffs from there. So if you've got three backups, you're paying for probably one and a quarter's worth of storage, something like that depending on how much data you're changing. But yeah, they should talk about that more. Um, and uh, then, yeah, they, they should got hire more. you, John, because uh, you talk <laughs> about it a lot. In this five minutes, sure. What no, would you do I've without heard you me? talking about it before. It's uh, your chosen specialised subject, I think. If you, if you went on to Mastermind, I think you probably would talk about AWS differential snapshots. <laughs> It's either that or children's TV shows. <laughs> from which era? Uh, from right now. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You're still in that zone. I remember that zone. Yeah. I'm in the chauffeuring zone. <laughs> That's all I have to do for my kids nowadays is just drive them places because they want to go to far-flung corners of the country and they're not quite old enough to get themselves there. So uh, you've got all that to look forward to, John. Oh, my well, kids are so considering young, that was a dry, considering you thought that was a uh, dry and hardcore engineering subject, it was great to hear you enthusing about it so much. Speaking of chauffeuring, do we want to talk about the cloud cars next? No. Nice we want to talk segue. about. We want to talk about the environment next. <laughs> well, do you want to talk about cars and then we can before talk about the environment? Cloud cars. Well, John, now you're just changing the running order of things and you know that that's just going to go horribly wrong. When we talk about cars, if you want to talk about cars, I can be flexible. I'm quite happy to be flexible and talk about cars. So the reason we want to talk about cars is because uh, you may have seen an announcement from AWS yesterday um, that they have partnered with BMW on a cloud-based vehicle data platform to power a new generation of connected cars. So we like cars and we like tech. So we thought, let's pick on that article and talk a little bit about connected cars. I've had some experience with connected cars, and to be honest, in the early days, it was all a bit naff. 
it didn't really do very much. You could had an app on your phone and you could see how much fuel you had in your car. Well, that's really useful because when you get in the car, you've got a fuel gauge there, so it's kind of pointless. Uh, but I think things have moved on quite a bit since those early days, um, particularly with the likes of uh, Tesla, etc. Obviously, this article is not about Tesla. This article is about BMW. Uh, but, uh, you know, the way we are going in terms of uh, autonomous cars, driverless cars, and so on and so forth, the whole connected car thing is becoming, um, you know, rather mainstream. So, um, yeah, John, there's a nice segue for you to talk about cars um, of the connected variety. Uh, okay, so the article that I'm looking at is from Silicon Angle, which I don't think was on the newsletter, but the newsletter had the um, the official announcement, I think, which was quite light on detail. It was it was very corporate. Um, but to be fair, this announcement is quite light on detail, presumably because it's um, tied up in lots of NDAs and, and business secrets and all the rest of it. The short version and I can't really do a short version because the article's quite short, is AWS and BMW software teams have worked together to, I think, triple the amount of data that they can pull out of modern cars. Because, like you say, it would have just been, you know, here's a fuel gauge. Wonderful. And now it'll be doing things like tyre pressures and directions and, and tyre wear and basically anything that you can get on a Formula 1 car remotely. Because that's probably where the driver from this is coming from as well. Because motorsport drives um, innovation in in uh, commercial vehicles, in um, retail vehicles, and, and non-motorsport. And then Amazon has sort of gone, "Oh, we can do software," and they've kind of hooked in on top. Um, but what they're saying here is that Amazon have AWS have worked with BMW to pull out a whole bunch of cool data but they've not really told you what it is presumably because it's proprietary um slap it in aws in a secure manner whatever that actually means and then they're planning to make it uh, available to other vehicle makers soon as part of its aws for automotive offering which looking at their page is a sales page but they talk about um you know lyft and bmw group and volkswagen group and rivian and uh, digital engagement for your customers and product engineering and helping your supply chain and your manufacturing and all of that because as we um, as we all know everything is software driven even if it's not it is of course yeah and I think this is less about the kind of end user aspect of connected cars and perhaps more uh, about the kind of large fleet management aspect of connected cars because even the likes of BMW when they're selling a car to an individual uh, they're still effectively managing that as part of a fleet of vehicles that they have on the road so they want to know um, you know things like uh, preventive maintenance notifications etc so that uh, if there's a problem with the vehicle they can get in touch with the uh, with the driver uh, get that brought back to base to have it repaired before uh, it becomes a more serious problem and that kind of thing so all of that stuff is really pretty cool. A slight tangent, because I, I do often go off on tangents. I did have a connected bike at one point. It got stolen in London. Uh, but uh, my Ducati Multistrada had a lovely app that you could uh, connect to the bike. And uh, it would give you such wonderful information as lean angles. So that was always a challenge to go out and see how far you could lean the bike over. Um, so you could brag to your friends and show them on the phone the lean angle that you'd achieved on that day. Not particularly relevant to this article, but, uh, you know, fun nonetheless. Um, 
So do you want to say anything else about connected cars, John, or should we go back to the uh, to, to the previous item on the agenda? Would would you brag about your lean angle if you'd fallen off? My lean angle? Oh, I was at ninety degrees, mate. <laughs> no, you don't show that. You don't show that one. No, it's only the eighty nine degree one that you survived. That's the one you got to show. So. <laughs> you're at eighty nine degrees because you're scraping along on your leg. Yeah, well, your foot hits the floor on a bike like that before anything else. So, uh, but actually, the super bikes and the MotoGP bikes lean beyond ninety degrees. Because um, they're hanging right off the bike, but uh, yeah, that's a probably a different podcast to uh, to talk about motorbikes in 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 that level of detail. So um, yeah, the other one that we skipped over uh, because of your neat or not so neat segue into cars um, was this article about how cloud native computing is good for the environment. So I guess we ought to start for the people who don't understand what cloud native computing is just to talk a little bit about what that phrase actually means. Oh, you're the salesman. You sell it. <laughs> no? Okay. Cloud-native well, computing. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, do you want me to go? Do you want me to do it? Uh, I'll do it. Okay. If you're comfortable doing it, John, go for it. <laughs> always be uncomfortable so cloud native computing right computing in its kind of i'm not talking charles babbage turning handles um is running stuff on machines on computers on servers on integrated processes on whatever previously you had to if you want to run a website you needed a server to do that that's not considered cloud native because you could do it in not the cloud. Yeah, cloud native is things like serverless um, containers, kind of it lambdas, which is more serverless, but you know, particular implementation function as a service, database as a service, doing things that you previously couldn't do, but doing them in the cloud. So that's what cloud native means. It's things that have been designed to work with the cloud as opposed to work on the cloud, if you like. Because servers run on the cloud, serverless is working with the cloud. So that's cloud native computing. Did I, did I sell it? <laughs> you did. I'm sold. Uh, and also I'm a bit of a hippie, so I want to know why it's good for the environment. Resource density. Really boring, but um, if mm. you are doing things in such a way that you're not running, so if you want to run a web server, yeah, even in Amazon, you are massively over provisioning probably quite a lot of the time because your naughty little WordPress site is getting what a couple of hundred people a day if you're lucky, you know. Like, I know my blog gets one person a month, it really doesn't need to be provisioned particularly highly massively over provisioned and it's sitting there spinning its wheels wasting clock cycles wasting power and cooling which is more power because we're generating heat with power and then we have to cool it down by using more power um just to sit there doing nothing serverless cloud native serverless in particular if you're not using it it's not there i mean it is but someone else can use it yeah that's kind of the idea and because you're not using that compute capacity so someone else is using that compute capacity you get much higher resource density 
containers are a good example of this, right? Because on the same sort of size instance that you can run, you're, you're historically running your one Apache instance, you could run 30 of them if, you, you know, if you're over-provisioned. You just run a lot more in a lot smaller space. So that's kind of the big thing. And then on top of that, um, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, the hyperscalers, so not IBM, um, are much better at running data centers than, I was going to say Walmart, but Walmart are probably quite good at running data centers. They're much better at running efficient data centers than ye olde website hosting provider that's got three racks in a cupboard somewhere. Yeah, Because they run it at such ridiculous ridiculous scale they've got such experience with it because they're doing it so much they're building up decades of engineering expertise in short spaces of time because they're doing it so much and then on top of that if you talk about you could get really kind of into the weeds on the physics on this you it the power you generate isn't the power that you receive at the other end of the cable you lose some of it so if you're moving um power to fewer places you're losing less power in like heating in the wires and stuff and then the data centers what they tend to do if they can is they put them near things like wind farms and hydroelectric dams and all that kind of thing because renewables they don't store very well our grid as particularly in the uk but other parts of the world as well are not set up to work with renewables because renewables are kind of up and down a bit you know you get power when it's windy or when it's sunny or when the tide's going in or out but not when you need it and the grids are set up to work with power kind of being at a nice constant level so by setting up near renewables when there's a surplus they can just kind of hoover some of that up and run a bit more or store it somewhere because they're quite good at that as well so that's kind of it in a nutshell and the article says this about um, data centers in general but a little while ago Microsoft ran a trial of putting servers the, a mini data center underwater because you can just in a nitrogen sealed box they did it off the coast of the Orkneys I think because again they've got loads of spare wind power up there so they just stuck it underground underwater there which meant oh look you're running cheaper because you're right next to surplus power. You're not having to run cooling because you're underwater. <laughs> it must have been quite tricky to have a hard drive swapped out in that data center, though, if uh, if one did fail. <laughs> I mean, yes. The results of that particular experiment was that the hardware rate of failure was actually lower than in a normal data center. So whilst they couldn't just oh, pick it up to change a drive, they failed less. Mm. But when they did Which fail, you need a qualified diver why. to come down and, uh, well, a qualified diver who is also qualified uh, to, uh, to to replace parts in servers. So, um, yeah, it's probably quite a niche uh, skill set. Bit niche. But, uh, I'm sure it exists. <laughs> I'm sure it exists. Uh, and uh, they probably get well, no, paid they were sealed because they just filled them with like nitrogen. quite a good job, actually. Uh, so <laughs> they were the completely sealed, fails, so you had to pull them out of the failed. ground. Hmm. Because they were sealed units full of nitrogen, which is presumably why they were failing less, because oxygen is what causes failures quite a lot. Because if you crack open a spinning hard drive, it's full of nitrogen. Mm. I guess it didn't need a fire suppression system in that particular data centre. No, it's underwater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and my cat is so, um, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I, I guess uh, it's obvious then why why cloud native computing is um, 
better for the environment. Um, I was actually had dinner with a, a friend and former colleague last week who was telling me about some data centers they were in the process of decommissioning uh, that had 10-year-old servers in them with customers who'd left five years ago and the things were still powered on. So uh, I think that's the opposite end of the, uh, the scale. Uh, so there's still an awful lot to do in the data center industry in order to make it more sustainable. Um, but uh, I guess, uh, you know, as more and more people start to adopt serverless technologies and cloud native technologies then uh, that can only uh, be a good thing for for the planet i guess but uh, we're out of time now john i'm afraid so uh, i think we ought to really wrap up uh, especially as your cat seems to be getting uh, rather restless so uh, we'll leave <laughs> you to sort that out Maybe. and uh, thank you uh, to anyone listening um, that uh, brings us to the end of episode two of Logicast. We'll be back next week for another deep dive into the AWS news. Um, until then, uh, you've got a couple of episodes to download from your favorite podcast distribution channel. We are now live on all of the uh, the usual uh, podcast outlets, iTunes, Amazon, Google Podcasts, etc. Um, so do check us out and uh, we will speak to you again next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>